Thanks for those who are watching online. My name is Matthew Lee, pastor here at Grace. And uh, before I begin the message this morning, I want to remind us that there are two sacraments uh, in the New Testament uh, for us, uh, instituted for us to remind us and to connect us with Jesus. Uh, and they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to focus on the Lord's Supper this morning. But I also wanted to talk just a minute about baptism. Uh, both are pictures of wonderful uh, uh, things in our lives that connect us to Jesus and the gospel. And we're going to have a baptism on October 15th. It's a Sunday afternoon where we'll hear the testimonies of those who will be baptized. We'll, we'll also um, uh, eat together, and then we'll go to the ocean, and be ba- those will be baptized, and we'll be there to participate with them. So I wanted to take just a second and talk about baptism just for a minute. Uh, the word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which also means to dip or to immerse or to cover. It's used 127 times in the New Testament. Um, And the primary picture of baptism can be found in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 8, that says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. And that's one of the things we say when we're in the water with the people being baptized. We, we pull it from Romans chapter 6 that you are buried with Christ in his death. And then we hold them there. <laughs> and then we say, rise and walk in the newness of life. And it's a great picture of what Christ has done in that person's life. In fact, in the first century, right after Jesus ascended back into heaven, the disciples began practicing baptism. And one of the practices that the church did was as a person became a follower of Jesus, they would take this long process and talk to them about discipleship. And then they would be baptized in front of the church. And the baptism went something like the person would stand on one side of the baptism place and they would um, take off all their clothes as a symbol of removing the old life, and then they would get into the baptism as a symbol of being uh, replenished and rejuvenated and regenerated by the Word and by God and Jesus' work on the cross, and then they would come out the other side and they would give them new clothes as a new clothes of life and a new newness of life. And that's what we're going to do at the beach, but we're going to keep our clothes on. Um, But that's a great picture of what baptism is all about. And just as we read in, in... In Romans, baptism is a picture of the work that Christ has done in the hearts and lives of a person's life. And and so if you have any questions about baptism, if you uh, would like to talk to us about your children being baptized, or you want to be re-baptized, please uh, come see me or Steve, one of the elders, uh, one of the deacons, somebody on staff, um, about being baptized. And I want to make this disclaimer about what we believe here at Grace, is that baptism uh, reflects new life. It doesn't cause new life. Uh, Baptism is a line in the sand, if you will. It's a declaration of what Christ has already done. Being baptized does not save you in any way. And so I want to invite you to put that on your calendar for October 15th in the afternoon uh, to not only think about being baptized yourself if you haven't done so, but to please be there for those who are to celebrate with them and their newness of life. So as I mentioned last week, we have uh, three chapters left in our study of Mark. Uh, Chapters 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 14 is one of the longest in Mark. 
Um, and you remember the setting from last week, which we're in this week in, in Mark chapter 14, is that the setting is Jesus is coming to the end of his life. In fact, it's the last week of his life, and all the religious leaders and all the powers that be at the time are looking at Jesus with envy, they're looking at him with, uh, with disgust, and they're trying to not only shut him up, they're also trying to destroy him and get rid of him because of the influence that he's having over the people. And so they knew they had to do something about it, and it's this last week of their life. And in this last week of his life, they go to uh, the upper room, and he has the last, his last supper with his disciples, and that's what we'll look at this morning. So just as I did last week, I want to invite you to think about Jesus, 33 A.D. Not Grace Community Church, 450 Spanish Wells Road, 2023. But to go with me, if you can, as best you can, to the upper room with Jesus. Because we're going to take a look at Jesus and his last supper. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what we've already got to experience of what you're doing in the hearts and minds of people around the world through Forrest and Christina, through our own folks here as they travel to Selma, Alabama, and what you're doing in the hearts and mind of us at this very moment. God, there's lots of things going on outside of this room. Lots of things that grab our attention, that grab uh, maybe some some things that we are thinking about and pulling us towards. And God, I just pray this morning that you would help us focus and filter everything in our lives through your presence with us. And so God, this morning we ask you in this moment, in these next few minutes, that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you would give us clarity of your love for us, that you would give us clarity of the things in our lives that need to change in light of your word. And God, I pray this morning that you would also remind us that the, the same power that shows us and exposes truth to us is also the same power by your spirit that enables us and empowers us to live out truth. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? <clears throat> Jesus' name. Amen. One author said this, a study of the Lord's Supper is a soul-stirring experience because of the depth of meaning that it contains. Frederick Beekner in his book, Faces of Jesus, said this, remember when, we rem when in remembrance of Jesus, the disciples ate the bread and drank the wine. It was more than mere bread and wine they were dealing with, for all the tragic and ludicrous battles Christians have fought with each other for centuries over what actually takes place at the Mass, the Eucharist, the Communion, or whatever they call it, they all would seem to agree that something extraordinary takes place. Even if the priest is a fraud and the bread a tasteless wafer, the wine not wine at all but temperance grape juice, listen, the one who comes to this outlandish meal in faith may find there is something to feed his deepest hunger, may feel stirring within himself a life more precious, more urgent, more near than his own. This past week I asked a few people, what's your experience? What's your memories? What's your thoughts when it comes to communion and the Lord's Supper? What was your tradition what did you learn as a kid and 
And what do you know now? Has anything changed? Anything different? Anything you think of? And as you can imagine, in these different people that I've asked, there were varied answers. There were varied backgrounds, varied uh, denominational things, uh, just different experiences altogether. And I'd imagine in a setting like this, there are that many differences this morning. When you think about the Lord's Supper. But all, like Beekner said, would agree there's something to it. There's something special about it. There's more meaning than just the bread and just the cup. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, as we hear Jesus in the upper room and the, and the mystery that sometimes is around this meal, I pray for us to have some clarity and some hope and some deeper understanding of why Jesus instituted this Last Supper, which was literally his Last Supper. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 12 through 16 and stop right there. There's three aspects I want to look at for this passage, and the first aspect is the preparation of the Passover. Verse 12 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and when a man, a, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now at this moment in Jesus' life, the Passover meal has probably been celebrated by the Jewish people for about 1,500 years. Passover was a huge occasion. The, the best thing we can compare it to is maybe the way we do Christmas. It was a, a, a lots of preparations like we do. We'll, we'll, we'll hammer Amazon with our gifts. We'll do uh, presents. We'll do food. We'll do planning. All the kind of stuff that swirls around Christmas. Now, even more so and with more meaning and more history is the Jewish Passover. But in an understanding, there's a lot going on in the preparations of Passover. So when Jesus instructed his two disciples to go find the room and prepare, it wasn't just going to find a room and find some bread and find some juice. There was a lot that went into it. It was, it was significant. And so the first thing you see that the disciples asked about was, Jesus, where? Where do you want us to go? So they needed a place. Now Jesus sends out two disciples. Luke chapter 22 says that they sent out James and John, the two disciples, and they sent him into the city. And they said, look for a guy carrying water on his head. Now, isn't that unusual? So he sent out two disciples. Look for a man carrying water, and he will meet you. Now, remember Passover is uh, all these people. Josephus and other historians say there could be up to 2 million people in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, this time of Jesus. And so all these people, and Jerusalem's only like four miles in circumference, meaning that all these people are in like a one-mile square circum, uh, place. And so all these people, and Jesus sends this, these two guys, James and John, into the city and says, find the guy. Now this is really unusual because one of the reasons that should stand out to us is that men did not carry water on their head. That was the women's job. And so when the guys come and they're like, there's a guy carrying water, that must be him. Now, what's really interesting about this is that 
Verse 16 says that Jesus' plan worked, that they found the guy. There were some arrangements. Jesus sends out two to find a room. Now let me just ask and stop for a second. Sometimes we can read things and just kind of let, let them go, but this week I started thinking, could Jesus have just told them where the place was? Like, hey, go here, turn left, that's it, there's the house. Why did he send the two out? I thought about it this way. I believe Jesus wanted to make their faith become sight. I think it's the same thing that he did when he fed the 5,000. Could Jesus have just put bread and fish in front of people like that? Sure he could have. But it says that Jesus broke the bread, gave it to the disciples, the disciples then gave it to the people. Jesus wants us to participate in faith with his plans. And so he sends the two out in faith, in participation with his plans. Now Jesus, remember, didn't have Priceline. He didn't have Expedia. But he made a reservation. He made a reservation in this upper room, a meeting place. Now, most Jewish homes were had like this box base and then a little smaller box on top that they called the upper room. And most, if not all, the houses could be accessed, the upper room could be accessed from outside the building. So it was private, it was secluded. Sometimes it was used for a storeroom. Sometimes it was used for just a quiet place of meditation. Sometimes it was used for other guests as they were passing through. But one of the reasons it was used is for rabbis to teach their disciples. And so when traveling rabbis would come through, they would ask for the upper room, and the, the rabbi and the disciples would go up there, and he would teach them. So Jesus is following the same kind of tradition, same kind of custom, and he's going as a rabbi to his upper room to teach his disciples. And verse 16 says, And so they found the room and prepared for the Passover. So let me just ask you this as a side note. As I was thinking about this place, what this place was going to represent, a time for Jesus to be intimate with his disciples with his last meal, to teach them and feed them. And it started at me asking myself this question, do I have a place with Jesus? Where I sit and he feeds me and it's an intimate spot with him. All through the New Testament, you see Jesus going to a secluded place, going to a closet, going to the mountain, to a secluded place. Why? To be fed by his own Father. And so it speaks to the need in our own lives to have a place. And just like the disciples, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of distractions to keep you from that place. But here's the point. Jesus has reserved that spot and time for us so he can be with us. And so they find a place. The place prepared for them. And then they make preparations. Now there's some details in these preparations that I want to go through because it's not like anything else, any other meal. It's the Passover meal. And one of the things in the preparation that they needed was a lamb. Now, a lamb was very significant. Now, Passover began at sundown, and so the Passover lamb would be uh, killed 
or sacrifice before sundown. Most scholars think between 3 and 5 before the sun Passover began. Now, why was it a lamb that needed to be part of the Passover? Well, one of the reasons, the primary reason, is that the lamb, if you remember, was the, what was slaughtered and killed so the blood could be put over the doorpost of the Egyptian people, when they were, uh, for, for, I mean, for the Israelite people as they were leaving Egypt. And so the lamb being slaughtered and the blood of the lamb would be a reminder of the Passover that the death angel, when they came to that house, would see the blood on the doorpost and would pass over them. And so the lamb was a reminder to that. They also needed unleavened bread. This was to remind them how uh, quickly they needed to leave because the leaven would rise. And if unleavened bread, you could leave quickly. They needed a bowl of salt water. All part of the meal. And the salt water reminded them of the tears that they had cried and shed in slavery. They needed a collection of bitter herbs. Horseradish mixture to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They needed a paste called cherisheth, which is a mixture of like uh, apples and dates and pomegranates. And they would also put in uh, sticks of cinnamon and they would grind all that up. And that was to remind them of the bricks that they made while they were in slavery in Egypt. And then they would have four cups of wine. And each of these cups of wine reminded them of a promise from Exodus chapter 6. And the first promise was that, I will bring you out of slavery, says God, in, in Exodus chapter 6. Second promise, I will redeem you. Third promise, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Fourth promise of the fourth uh, cup of wine, I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as they sat down and laid down and reclined and had this meal, all this was being prepared. It was intentional, filled with purpose. And the same thought and attitude needs to be present in our preparations as we come to this meal. Because here's the truth. It's not just a meal if Jesus is present. They make the preparations, and now we enter the room. Are you there? Do you have a seat? It's a little crowded, I know. But get there. Listen and see and witness what Jesus says. He says, in the midst of this significant meal, one of you are going to betray me. Listen to verses 17 through 21. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to one, Say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to him, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. In the middle of this significant last supper of Jesus, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 17 says that when Amidin came, he came to the disciples. And it says that in verse 18 that he reclines with him. Now, remember last week we talked about uh, reclining with Jesus, that they would most likely recline on their left elbow and eat with their right hand, right? And so they're reclining around the table. Now, this was the one change of the Passover uh, from the old times. Now, Exodus chapter 12 talks about how they would stand and have a staff and sandals on, ready to leave. And now they were reclining, participating in this meal. It was a new guideline that Jesus was instituting because reclining signifies that they were no longer slaves, but free. 
There was no hurry anymore. They could rest and linger and spend time in the presence of Jesus. It was a sign of intimacy. No reason to be in a haste. Now, one commentator said this, as they're reclining, as they're participating in this meal, it could be that Jesus is thinking of Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In the midst of this scenario, in the midst of this dinner, Jesus knows one is going to betray him. Anyone who shared a meal in that culture, it equaled being a friend with them, that you welcomed them in. And so to think that any one of us being your friends, Jesus, is going to betray you, it's unthinkable. But they knew it had to be true because Jesus said it. Now, I don't know the dynamics, of course. I don't know the intricacies of their relationships, but it's surprising to me that nobody seemed to suspect Judas. Because if they did, I'm thinking they would have said, Jesus, hang on just a second. You might want to step out. We've got to talk to Judas for a second. But there's no suspicion of that. Jesus does give one last warning. He says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better if he was never born. He's telling in advance the consequences of the one who's betraying. And it doesn't register with Judas. And you know what's interesting is after the announcement of this betrayal, it doesn't say it here specifically in Mark, but in the other accounts, right after, they, right after Jesus announces the betrayal, it's like they say, okay, Jesus, we know which one's the worst. Now who's going to be the greatest? And what does Jesus answer? Jesus stands up, takes off his loincloth, and says, the greatest among you is the servant among you, and he washes the disciples' feet, including Judas. Now there is a powerful, powerful thing that happened as Jesus bent down to wash the disciples' feet who was going to betray him. Some commentators have asked, why would he do that? Most believe it's to give Judas one more chance to understand the grace and love and sacrifice for you. To reconsider Judas. Think about this again. Recognize my love for you, my service to you, my sacrifice, and it didn't deter Judas at all. Judas failed to examine his own heart before the Lord. And it reminds me of what Paul says to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and you drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. There is power in this meal that we need to recognize. It reminds me, when I was a kid growing up in the Baptist church, sometimes those Baptist preachers would get really fired up, get a little loud. And I remember them saying this verse, and I would think, Oh, God, please help me know if I'm doing this right. 
I didn't want to mess it up. I didn't understand it all, but I sure didn't want to do it wrong. There was a seriousness to it. It was powerful. It was something I needed to pay attention to. And I knew I needed to examine myself. So what does that mean, examine ourselves? Well, in this context of Paul and Corinthians, what was happening is that people were just coming and really not even thinking about the Lord at all. In fact, they were bringing food for themselves, and if somebody else was hungry, they would just eat themselves, and who cares if you don't have any food? In fact, they would eat all the food up, and, and then they would also drink all the wine for communion and get drunk on the wine for communion. Real flippant when they came to the Lord's table. And Paul says, you need to examine yourself. You need to think about what's happening. What's your repre- what this represents. Paul is basically saying to them and to us, you need to do a heart check. Is my heart in the right place? Am I withholding forgiveness to someone? Are there things I haven't asked forgiveness for or confessed to God? Is there a hesitancy in me about obedience? Is there sin in my life that I'm just not willing to let go? Seeing this meal is a time to reflect on Jesus and you as he washes your feet and serves you. Many churches today have these two primary things they say before communion. They'll say, don't take communion if you're not a follower of Jesus because it's not just a religious ritual practice. It's too important for that. And they'll also say, be sure you are current in your relationship with God and that he knows your heart and that you've shared your heart before you take this meal. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, to judge yourself appropriately before the Lord, that he would sanctify us and discipline us in preparation of this meal. That's how we come to the table. So the idea is this. Am I walking out my faith and living in active relationship with God, allowing him to do his sanctifying work in my life? Am I committing to be obedient in light of Christ's sacrifice and love for me? And if so, communion takes on this beautiful, profound, deep, meaningful thing between you and the Lord. And if you're not that, you're making a mockery of this sacrament. Judas lacked the self-examination, and it led to his betrayal. In the same way, our lack of self-examination before the Lord will in some way lead to our betrayal of him too. And so it will be with us. And then we hear Jesus say these words. While they were eating, he took some bread, and he took, after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when they had taken the cup and given thanks and gave it to them, and they all drank it, and he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 22 and verse 23, and even verse 26, they talk about, uh, it talks about the, the bread. That Jesus says, The bread now is my body. Remember what it was before. The bread was a a, a means of the understanding of of unleavened bread 
and to be able to move quickly and to be free. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Now my body broken for you is your freedom. Do this in remembrance of me now. Then he takes the cup and he talks about the blood being his blood being poured out. The crucifixion is right around the corner. And God requires shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Think about Isaiah 53, this familiar passage where we, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, his stripes, because of his stripes, were healed. When his blood was shed, life was given. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you read through Leviticus chapter 16, you understand a little bit about the understanding of what the Jewish people understood about forgiveness and sin. You'll understand about the sacrifice. Because in that day, the priest would sacrifice bulls and goats and birds for the people's sin. But the problem was there were so much sin and not enough bulls and animals to sacrifice. And so what God did as a gift, he said, we'll give you a day of atonement. And one day of the year, you'll sacrifice for the sins of that year of all the people. And so on that day of atonement, the high priest would go into the holies of holies of the temple, the tabernacle, uh, slaughter the bull for the sins of the people. He would also go out and there would be two, two goats. He would slaughter one on the altar and then he would take one. And he would lay his hands on it as a symbol of all the sins of the people during that year and lay it on the goat. And then he would parade the goat all around the city and all the people would celebrate because all their sins were on this goat. And then he would lead it away into the wilderness to take away the sins. But the problem is, the day after atonement, everybody sinned again. So there would need to be more goats. The Day of Atonement was a gift of God's to practice every year. But here's something I want us to understand. This word atonement that you read in Scripture, particularly in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, is this word to cover. It doesn't mean to take away. The sacrifice every year, every year would just cover it up, but it wouldn't take it away. Now watch, what does John describe as for Jesus as he's introduced into ministry? John 1, 29, here is the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sins of the world once and for all. The sacrificial system was always a shadow to the work of Jesus on the cross, once and for all. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews seven twenty seven. unlike other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day. This he did once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.10, and it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And here's the application. The substitutional death of Christ brought forgiveness of sins. His loss of life made opportunity for us to live forever. And that's what we think about when we come to this table. That's what we think about when we think about the bread being his body and the juice being his blood. 
Jesus says in verse 29, Truly I say I'll never drink again of this fruit of the vine. It is once and for all, he's saying, when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Matthew says that until I drink it with you. What a great promise. That Jesus is going to drink it with us. Verse 26 says they praise God and they went out to the Mount of Olives, which we'll pick up the story next week. From the time of Jesus in the upper room... Until now, the Lord's Supper has been observed by millions of believers in millions of different places. And even though we're not doing it the same way, we're a long way away from Jesus in the upper room. In fact, during COVID, we used a, a little thing where we flipped open the thing and drank the little thing. We no longer recline in a non-rushed, intimate meal but now it's shared with lots of people and this feeling of, oh man, finally we're at the end of the service, I can get out of here, can creep in. We use different bread. Instead of wine, we drink grape juice out of a plastic thimble-sized cup. Lots of things are different than the time Jesus had his meal with his disciples. And it even can sometimes feel contrary. Like this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. But here's our hope and promise, is that even as flawed as we are as people, and even in as flawed as we are sometimes in our processes, here's the truth. We still commune with Jesus because Jesus wants us to commune with him and he with us. And so when you do this, when you partake of the bread and you drink of the drink, don't think about what it isn't. Think about what it is. And Jesus says, remember me. So we partake together. Commune is in community. Together, we say to Jesus, as a body of believers, we remember you. We remember your sacrifice. We realize how unworthy we are. In fact, we recognize, Jesus, that we're unworthy, but you are the one who makes us worthy. We recognize there's things in our lives that we need to get right with you, but only you can help us do that. You know, the Lord's Supper is called a lot of different things. Communion, Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And the word Eucharist really just means it's translated thanksgiving. And so as we come and partake, we are as a body of believers, individually and corporately, saying thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because we are very, very forgetful people. Seth and Susie and the team's going to come. They're going to play. And as they play, I invite you to come. Stations up front or stations in the back to get the bread get the cup, take it back to your seat, and then I'll pray for us and we'll partake together. Let me pray for us now. God, thanks again for this time. God, I thank you for the instructions you gave your disciples that transcends all the way to us today, to drink in a worthy manner. And our worthiness is only found in you through the sacrifice you made on the cross. So when we think about the bread and we think about the cup, we think about your body being broken, your blood being poured out, for me, for the forgiveness of my sins. So help us, we pray, as we partake, to remember and to think and to be thankful.
In Jesus' name, amen.